Donaso. Third day of our 10-day cycle. So we return to meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, this time going right back to the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon of simply generating out of a field of loving-kindness and extending it in all directions to the sides above and below. At the same time, we, can re- we go back to Buddha Gosa's marvelous, very systematic teachings on loving-kindness in the Visuddhimagga, or Path of Purification. And we may recall, it's very helpful, what the catalyst, the immediate catalyst is that arouses this genuine aspiration, this yearning of loving-kindness. And what is that? Seeing, perceiving the the lovableness or the lovable qualities. Bearing in mind, these are not simply the attractive qualities. They're not the same, right? And so we think it's very easy. Oh, so lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Like cake, you know, you go to a a nice bakery. Oh, what a lovely cake. (laughs) I want some. That's a lovely cake. That bread over there, boring. But that cake looks really good. So difference between lovable and attractive. That's kind of important. Easy to mistake or to conflate the two. Physically, clearly there's a lot of difference about just if we just focus on for the time being on human beings. Physically, some much more attractive much more lovable than others over the course of a life. Even children, some are cuter, some not so cute. <laughs> Adolescent, eh, and right on to adulthood. But if we look at the beginning and the end, it's pretty even. That is, the fertilized egg. <laughs> Who looks at one and says, oh, that's a really cute one. <laughs> that one, yeah, gushy. That's a really cute one. Oh, I think that's going to be a female. I want her. She's not female yet, but I think so. <laughs> <You know? laughs> They're not even gender differentiated yet, right? And so they're in the very early ages. I mean, it goes from a fertilized egg to yogurt. I mean, the Tibetans describe in detail, in Tibetan medical text, the detail of you know, looking like yogurt and then kind of like a little frog and onto a fish and then onto something that looks kind of humanoid and so forth. So in those early phases, really, I think we're pretty much all the same. You know, Mexican yogurt, Finnish yogurt, female yogurt, male yogurt. Australian yogurt's a little bit strong for me. <laughs> but still, good, good yogurt. Right. So at the beginning, pretty much all the same. And then, when you get to be 80 or 90, you know, not that much difference, even telling the difference between a man and a woman. Sometimes not so easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> old monks and old nuns, definitely difficult. <laughs> <laughs> you have to look quite carefully, and you can't ask. And after death, then definitely flattening. It really flattens out. Just a few days ago, I was reading a story in, in the, from the Pali Canon about a beautiful courtesan, young woman, gorgeous, apparently just knockout. Young men would just pay lots and lots of money to have you know, some pleasure with her. 
but she was also very devout, follower of the Buddha, and she would, she would uh, host, host, I have to choose my words, <laughs> verb very carefully here, she would make offerings to a group of monks that would come regularly to her house, very clean, they were very good monks, they just received the alms, all spick and span clean, all fine. And it was interesting, there was, no, there was no smear, oh, she's a slut, she's a whore. There's nothing like that, she's a courtesan. It's one of the jobs they had back then. And so there was nothing dismissive about her at all. That was just, that's what she does, that's what she chose to do, okay. And some monks would go, keeping their eyes down, receive alms. It was very simple. Some other monks heard that she gave very good food and that she was gorgeous. And they started wanting to come to her place too. For other reasons, you know, just to gawk. And then, very sadly, right in the prime of her beauty and her youth, she suddenly became very ill, and then she died. And so the Buddha, knowing that some of his monks were already developing you know, some strong lust for this young woman while she was alive, he instructed that they would take her corpse, her fresh corpse, beautiful, I'm sure, very beautiful corpse, take it out to the charnel ground, and he said, leave it out there, don't let any crows or any birds or anything get to it, just leave it there on the ground, protect it. And then we'll, ha we'll call a meeting there at the Channel Ground in two days. Just a couple of days later. This is India. So it's pretty hot. And so he gathered the monks, including these lustful monks that wanted to come to her house, you know, to be able to gawk at her beauty. And so there it is, two days old, already worms coming. And so the Buddha said, all right, here's a body. Uh, we're willing to sell this body. Do I hear 100 pieces of gold? Anybody want 100 pieces of gold for this body? It's now moldering. It smells bad. It's swollen. It's got worms coming out of it. 100 pieces of gold. No? Okay, 50 pieces of gold. One piece of gold. One copper farthing. One copper... Couldn't sell her body for anything. Anybody take her for free? Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted it. He said, you see, one week ago, a man would give a thousand pieces of gold for this. Now look, nobody wants it even for free. And she was really gorgeous, and she was young. So death is the big flattener. The little fertilized egg, the Australian yogurt, Mexican yogurt, same. Corpse, old man corpse, old woman's corpse, young woman's corpse, young man's corpse. A week later, they're all pretty equally disgusting. So physically, we start out the same, we end the same. Mentally, right at the point of conception, there's called the clear light of conception. Just like there's the clear light of death following the blackout, there's a clear light of death. You enter into Rikpa, probably unknowingly, but you get into it, and then it passes, and you move on to Bardo, right? When the Bardo comes to an end, if you're taking birth as a human being again, then your Bardo psyche collapses into clear light of conception. Again, you get access to clear light, rikpa. Probably very brief. And then you come out of that, and you come to the substrate. And you have the substrate in the very, very early phase of conception. Flat, stem, stem, stem consciousness, stem cell consciousness. Not even human. It's substrate consciousness. And then the formation of the, of the fetus continues, and, that, and then we see the egg and the sperm actually are developing into human body, and that substrate consciousness now con conjoined with the egg and the sperm, which is a human egg and sperm, then in that conjunction of the two, then out of the substrate consciousness emerges a human psyche.
which develops, develops with all the senses as the brain forms, the eyes, the auditory cortex, and all of that form, right? It all develops like that. But the substrate consciousness there at the beginning, the substrate consciousness there at the end, just before the clear light of death. Your psyche, beautiful psyche, stupid psyche, irritable psyche, generous psyche, compassionate psyche, whatever it is, when it gets to the substrate, it's just the substrate. Your psyche is melted, and it's just the substrate consciousness. Started out as just substrate, ends as just substrate. So mentally, too, we start out even, we end even. Yeah, we say, yeah, but never mind, but what's in between? What's in between? Look, there's a lot of differences, just as I scan here. Old and young, fat and skinny, man and white, man and woman, and so forth and so on. A lot of difference, right? And then, of course, looking here, just one more, just one more. But all of these that we see, if we could actually see other people's minds as we see their bodies, the bodies are so easy to see, but if we could scan and watch people for one hour, just what, like watching television, watch the images that came up in their mind, the thoughts, the audio track of what's coming on their minds, the emotions, the desires, the mental afflictions, and the virtues, we'd find that there's everything there in one hour. It's hard to be angry continuously for one hour. It's hard to be compassionate continuously for one hour. If we could have just come in and total, come in with total clairvoyance for one hour and watch anybody around, almost anybody, we're going to see lovable qualities. We're going to see unlovable qualities. We're going to see a lot of boring qualities. And that's going to be true here and here and here and here and here and here and here. If you blend it out over time, you say, well, yeah, but this person has virtues, but then they then was really irritable and kind of grumpy and self-centered. And this person, yeah, very friendly, but then got grumpy and then got very selfish. This one's very nice, but then got really paranoid and anxious. And this, it all kind of blends out that we're sentient beings. And so we need to look through that and see that, yeah, the body starts out the same, ends the same. The mind goes through all these things but blends out. It's basically a higgledy-piggledy, all kinds of stuff coming up. And then in the midst of this, there is something constant. So much change from yogurt to decaying corpse. So much change. Beautiful body for a while, and then less beautiful, less beautiful, then really ugly. Ugly body, then ugly, ugly, and then uglier. <laughs> you know, but it all passes. It all passes, you know. And then it's then you're just one more rotten corpse, worm food, you know. So whether you're whether you're Sophia Loren or whether you're somebody else, there nobody wants it. Nobody will pay even one little penny for your rotting corpse one, one week later. So in the midst of this, what is constant? And of course, it's sentient beings. Somebody there wants to be happy. You know, and they really deserve to be happy. Just like this one getting older and older. I'll only get uglier from now on. I'll never look handsomer. I'll only look uglier. Year after year. Just time lasts. Boy, he's getting uglier. Oh, <laughs> look how his... Uh, <laughs> his, chin is his chin is dropping down to his, 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 to his chest. Oh. <laughs> oh, teeth falling out. <laughs> and yet, in the midst of all the changes, there is that. There's a sentient being there wishing for love, wishing to, to be happy. And everybody wants to be loved. Even Dalai Lama said, you might recall, even he said, even in my presence, he was talking about when he's speaking to a large group of people. You know, and he, he makes, 
if anybody has seen him in public teaching, he makes a lot of eye contact. He's not just kind of staring out into the crowd like that. He's going, you know, and when, especially with the inter- when the interpreter's going, and then he's, <laughs> he's looking around. He's often smiling, you know, and he'll, he'll make contact and he'll smile. And then somebody smiles back. And then, and, and then people say, I remember one woman, 5,000 people, and she said, we made eye contact. <laughs> he smiled at me. You know, it really meant a big deal to her. It was. And I say that with no sarcasm at all, you know. But he's looking out, smiling, and then we see somebody smile back. He said, oh, that makes me feel happy. <laughs> they smile back. But sometimes he looks out, and he's smiling, and somebody looks out. <laughs> said, oh, I feel a little bit disappointed. <laughs> I smiled, he didn't smile back. <laughs> even the Dalai Lama, you know. Even he likes to have somebody smile back. So maybe that's not such a bad thing. So we all want to be happy. We all want to be loved. And if we can be loved by a stranger, we know there's no attachment. There's no attachment. They're not smiling because they want something back. Almost always there's something there. In a romantic relationship, I'm smiling. I want something back. Friendship, even friendship. I'm smiling. I want something back. Parent, child, and so, I want something back. Hey, you have a commitment to me. You know? It's, it's true. But if a stranger, a stranger shows you love and kindness and wants nothing back, that's special. So that's why it said a bodhisattva is a friend of the whole world. Whoever walks through the door, there's a friend waiting because the bodhisattva's heart is open to anybody who comes in. That's really extraordinary. So that's where we're going. That's why I feel with total confidence this path is good. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it matters what we believe. Of course it matters what we believe. But regardless of what we, we believe, Reun- reincarnation, yes, no, God, yes, no, heaven, hell, yes, no, this is good. This is good. That's good. This has got to be good. So as we practice, I'm front-loading this once again so I can speak very little during the session. We can can do this as we're just doing this spatially, like a sonic boom of love and kindness going out. We can do it straight Theravada style or Pali Canon style, and that that is just sending out this kind of this wave of love and kindness, this aspiration. May each one here, each one in in all directions, human and non-human alike, may each one be well and happy. And just breathing that out, wishing it to be so, wishing it to be so. And just kind of like a leveling quality, whether they're old or young, they're rich or poor, attractive, physically attractive, unattractive, virtuous or unvirtuous, human or not human, whatever they may be. They're just even. It goes out evenly in all directions. So foundational, really good. doesn't require any special belief system at all. Just it's good. Now, if we'd like to bring this into the Mahayana context, then we can think of the, the liturgy, which you can recite. But after some time, it just may come spontaneously without having the discursive thoughts. And that is, as you're expanding this field of awareness, of love and kindness, why couldn't we all, just to put it in ordinary English, why couldn't we all find genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness? May we find this. 
May I, may I help us all find it. And may my spiritual mentors and the enlightened ones, may they bless me so that I may be en enabled to help everyone find happiness and the causes of happiness. So extending out there. And when you come to this final phase, that is first, why couldn't we all find happiness, the causes of happiness? May we all. May I bring this about. All of that can be coming like when you're breathing out. Right? But when you're breathing in, May the guru and the deity bless me that I may be so enabled. At that point, if you wish, you may breathe in and imagine the blessings coming in. Right? Just imagine just being blessed from all sides. Breathing in the light and then breathing out the light. So that doesn't take a whole lot of faith. Certainly good practice. So that would be a Mahayana approach. And then if you wish, if you wish, you may do this in the context of Adriana. Dissolve your ordinary sense of personal identity. Just dissolve it. You constructed it. You can deconstruct it. Dissolve it into emptiness, into your Buddha nature. Out of that emptiness, out of your own Buddha nature, then generate yourself in a form such as Avalokiteshvara. And then in that pure form, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe out that light and imagine it actually occurring. In all of these phases, you can imagine it actually occurring. But you can actually take the, the, the fruit as the path. You can imagine what lies in the realm of possibility as being drawn into the realm of actuality now, knowing perfectly well this is imagination. But imagine it just, and then we can be inspired by future possibilities drawn into the present. Yeah, that's powerful. So, basic Theravada, feet on the ground, totally sensible. Mahayana, quite realistic, incredibly rich. Vajrayana, incredibly profound. So either way, any of these three ways, all good. Okay? So let's have one session. Settle your body, speech, and mind in their natural states.
envision your own happiness, your own well-being. What would make you truly happy? each outbreath arouse the yearning. May I find genuine happiness in the causes of such happiness. And imagine it to be so.
and expand this field of loving kindness in all directions, embracing all sentient beings within the field, extend out into all directions without limit, excluding no one. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
release all appearances and let your awareness come to rest in its own nature. I've received a, a couple of notes about uh, rumination. Uh, I did check it out. So here's just one that the, uh, for rumination in Spanish, uh, rumiar is a verb used to describe what cows do when masticating repeatedly their food. <laughs> yeah, it's, chew it's called chewing the cud. So that's where it comes from. And so you swallow the food, it goes into your first stomach, and then when there's nothing else to do, you cough it up. And so that's ruminating. That's, that's a cow's rumination. And of course, we have an experience, and it goes into our, into our first mind, <laughs> and we cough it up and chew it over again. So it can be very productive. It means turning over in the mind, literally, to turn over in the mind. It can be very productive to reflect upon, to contemplate, and so forth. And we all know that rumination can be afflictive as well. But thank you. So whenever you're ruminating, you just think of cows chewing their cut. Then uh, there is a practice question here. Yep, here we are. How does the third fetter distort our shamatha practice? Any sneaky traps? Does the practice itself remedy it? And that is, here's the definition of the third fetter, as I understand them, the distorted grasp of rules and vows. So the third fetter is not the, the third of the five obscurations, but fetters that the, the Buddha spoke of, the distorted grasp or clinging to uh, rules and vows, rules and rituals. Uh, from, the, from the Pali Canon. Or here's another one, here's from Ajahn Amaro, clinging to rules, 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 roles, and conventions, believing, for example, that purification can come from the mere enactment of a procedure. That's a bit vague, I wouldn't go with that one. Uh, 
it's better to go back to classic sources. So that's a nice paraphrase, but it's, it's not... So enactment of a procedure, what's that? How about bodhicitta? That's a procedure. That's very purifying. So I won't go for the last one. I, that's why we have classics. Go back to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, you know? Uh, can speak with great authority. People like Buddha Gosa and the Tibetan tradition, Songkhaba, Padmasambhava, and so forth. But, yeah, the classic, classic examples are just um, the motions, the rituals. So what the Buddha was specifically re referring to here is, um, oh, for example, ritual sacrifices. If, you, if, I, if I sacrifice a certain cow or a certain number of goats or pigeons or what have you, or if I do some ritual ablution, uh, ablutions, isn't that, is that how you pronounce it, ablutions? So ritual bathing. You know, I need some ritual bathing. That's what I need. That'll purify my mind. I need to find the right river. Where's the right river? I need to find the right river to go bathe in. That'll, that I'll feel much more pure afterwards. So it's that kind of stuff where we're, we get locked onto the outer shell and miss the juice. So this is why when I'm teaching, I have my own practices, and that's private. And, the, and I can tell you publicly, there's a fair amount of ritual in my own private practice. I try to imbue it with meaning. But knowing that how easy it is, it's almost like centrifugal force. When we're offered early on in the practice, when we're offered rituals, it's so easy for the mind just to spin out through the outer shell. It's very, very easy to do. Whether it's a mantra, whether it's prostrations, which is a fine practice, so I'm not criticizing the form, I'm just saying they can be empty. And it's very easy for them to be empty. And moreover, I know what it's like from the inside to be empty. Especially during the years that I was a monk, there was a lot of... Liturgy. I'll tell you one real empty one. When I was in the uh, monastery in Dharamsala, there were about 30 of us monks, and I remember the partic this particular phase, I was the only Westerner there. The other, one, other two got sick and went home. So I was the only Western monk. But we had about 30 young monks in this monastery, and some patron came, gave us some offerings so we can have a good meal, and said, please recite some sutras from the Kangyur, maybe the eight-verse Prajnapanamita, something like that. Okay, well, yeah, why not? Good. What do they do? They distributed the sutras. Everybody got a little chunk. And then we all recited it at once. So you hear this cacophony of 30 monks all reciting different stuff. And then some monks would go, would found it was faster to, because you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're reading Tibetan text, you have to flip it over. They would just read page 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, 2, 6, 4, 6, 8, And they read it as fast as they possibly could. This is Prashant Paramita. This is pretty, pretty heavy-duty stuff. So I thought, what the, you know, I started getting skeptical about rituals pretty early on. So what's the point of this? I mean, this is really service to the man that just offered this the meal? What's this? It looks like to me like an empty ritual. Yeah, okay, all the words are coming out. Helter, skelter, blah, blah, blah. But that's very easy to do. So it happens. So... That's why I give relatively little ritual. Here's one of mine, dead man talking. Whenever I get up here, reminding myself I'm going to be dead soon. So, you know, however it goes, don't get too excited. Dead man talking. And that really is a good flattener, just like I said before. So that's a ritual I can really relate to. So it's that. It's clinging to the outer shell. And to some outer shells are, are really just superstition. And other outer shells may be the outer shell of something very meaningful if there's an inner juice. But if it isn't any, Shandideva says that if you're reciting mantras and other liturgy with a, with a distracted mind, what does he say? Deme. Deme. Pointless. Useless. 
devoid of meaning. You may as well just give it to a parrot, you know? So, that's what he's referring to. Clinging to the outer husk. And it's easy to do, and, and it's also vows. And so it's possible, it's possible to, to, take for, for, you know, to take monastic vows, for example, and be following the, the, the letter of the law for every single vow, you know? Letter of the law, every single one. And yet, look, where's the juice? What was that all for? 253 vows, 227 vows, Theravada, Mahayana, whatever it may be. What's the point of the 36 vows of a novice and so forth and so on? What's the point? Is it just, you like vows? You know? And no, the point is these are all, they're, they're like considered to be like a fence around a garden where you're growing vegetables, you're growing plants, and they're very fragile. You know, a little tiny carrot plant, a little tomato. They're very fragile, so if a bunny comes in, you know, the bunny comes in like, like Godzilla, you know, wreaks havoc, you know. Oh, it's a bunny, and all the, you know, the vegetables can't flee, they're all rooted. Ah. <laughs> so the precepts there, layers and layers, rings and rings of precepts, are to protect something. Protect what? Your practice of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. But if your whole ethics is just the vows, and there's no cultivation of samadhi and no wisdom, then it's a whole protect, bunch of protection of nothing. You have sand in the middle, <laughs> you know? So there'd be nothing there for the bunny even if it got in. So that's clinging to the outer ritual. Oh, such a pure monk, such a pure monk, except for there's nothing happening inside. Then what's the point? So that's what, that's what that ritual is about, that, that uh, fetter is about. Oh yeah, here's an easy one I can just polish off. Uh, to elaborate on the question the other night about monk is maybe too specific, but we see all these lamas and rinpoches who are married, and even some such as Tuku, I'll just leave the name empty, <laughs> who seems to have a few wives and affairs in his memoirs, but is still respected, and another, another somebody married. So, uh, so yeah, if a monk, or if a, if a so now we're really dealing with lamas. And then we have Rinpoches and Tukus, so we have all of these titles. The titles of spiritual aristocracy in the Tibetan tradition is really what they boil down to. And some Tukus are absolutely marvelous, and some you wonder, why on earth is this person called a Tuku? When Tibetans, uh, great lamas, great lamas, identify some child as a Tuku, the term often used is Rishu. They sometimes have a few candidates. So when the, the last before last Pinchen Lama died, the, he died far away from, from central Tibet. I think he was way off in eastern Tibet or maybe even in China itself. He had his entourage, his followers. So he passed away. It was very politicized. There was political tension between the people around the Dalai Lama and around the Pinchen Lama. So a lot of politics and Dharma go together in Tibet. And so there was the entourage of the Pinchen Lama he passed away. Well, they were very keen that they would find the next incarnation. So they'd be in charge and they would keep the money and prestige and all of that because they found the next Pension Lama. So they were really snappy to find some child that they regarded as the Pension Lama. In the meantime, the Pension Lama and the Dalai Lama since the 18th century, 17th century, have had a very strong relationship. And generally, it was the Dalai Lama who identified the next Pension Lama. So the Dalai Lama and the people around him, they sent out search parties. They found, I think it was three candidates, two or three, at least two, candidates to the Pension Lama. In the meantime, this is in the 1930s, so it's a time of civil war in, 
in China, and very precarious, very fragile political situation all over the place. And so we got the candidate for the, that the pension group, pensions group chose, and then two or three candidates the Dalai Lama's group had chosen as candidates, but they hadn't decided on one, and they didn't feel politically it would be appropriate at that time to refute the pension, which is entourage group. So you see, this is really Dharma politics. But when they finally do make a decision, then what they will do is they'll point to a child and say, this is the most suitable. Among the candidates we have, this is the most suitable. Right? What is, this is the best shot. This is our best guess. This is the most, the most suitable, the most suitable candidate. Does this mean absolutely 100% everybody who has the name Tuku is definitely an incarnation of the person of whom that person is said to be a Tuku? The straight Buddhist answer is no. No, definitely not. And then what, ha what happens if there are two simultaneously or more? And so, so it, there's a lot of complexity there. Um, so my own teacher, Gatsurinbuchi, who was a tuku identified from the age of three, said, who's a, who's a real tuku? Someone who is truly devoting him or herself to practicing dharma and helping the dharma flourish in the modern world. He just cut through it. Because he's an old man. He's an old man, and he's seen so much, I won't use profanity, but seen so much nonsense. That's a nice neutral word. I think you know what I really want to say. He's seen so much nonsense in the world. That, you know, and tuku this, lama that, rumpachi this, that, and the other thing. There was one occasion, oh, quite a few years ago, maybe 20 years ago, His Holiness Dalai Lama went down to the great monastic universities in the south of India. And the tukus, being the young spiritual aristocrats, they all get to sit in the front row. They get the, P, the uh, what the, mm, VIP seats because they're tukus, these young tukus. So they're sitting up, these privileged youngsters. And he's watching them goof off, you know, goofing around because they often get spoiled. And Dalai Lama turned down and says, you're all tukus. You're the worst. You're the worst. Your behavior is the worst. You're a disgrace. So sometimes they turn out marvelously. Sometimes not so marvelously, everything in between. Some tukus are never recognized. Some who are recognized as tukus, who knows? So sometimes they're lamas. Sometimes they're lamas for a good reason. Sometimes, so they're lamas. Sometimes they never take ordination as monks. Not necessary. Sometimes they take ordination, and then life changes. And really, out of compassion, out of bodhicitta, they give back precepts, maybe take a wife. It happens. Sometimes, all kinds of reasons. I could go on and on and on. So, so quite clearly, for centuries, going back before the time of Padmasambhava, back to the time of Vimalakirti, great bodhisattva, Arya bodhisattva, layperson, emphasizing that the lay way of life also is absolutely viable for leading the bodhisattva way of life, following the path to enlightenment. So there are different modes for different people. Bottom line, because I'm speaking a bit strongly here, bottom line is we don't know. We don't know what another person's realization are unless you have very deep realization and absolute 20-20 vision, clairvoyant vision of another person's mind. We don't know what another person's depth scope of, reali of realization of purity is. So overall, best to just mind one's own business. Try to purify one's, we're going to die soon, so try to purify our own mind first. As His Holiness said, I think it was maybe even in that 
discourse, that first one, that first teaching in Switzerland. Maybe, I think it was then. He said, yeah, I think it was, when he's speaking to those 5,000. He said, you know, it's more helpful to find one fault in yourself than find a thousand faults in other people. If you really want benefit, then much more helpful to find one fault in oneself rather than a thousand in other people. If you find other faults in other people, what are you going to do? Just increase your own pride. So, that's that. So, it's a, it's maybe to finish on a, a minor point, it's um, my own teacher, a revered teacher, Yachirambachi, hasn't been a monk for a long time because his teacher, as I told you earlier, told him, give back your precepts. This is, you know, you shouldn't be mon monastic for the direction life is going to take. He wears, mon he wears, he wears maroon robes. He has. He, t he keeps his hair short. So you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know that he's not a monk. And that's not at all uncommon. Sokni is not a monk. He has a wife. He has, I think, one child, I believe. Two? Two? Yeah. But he looks like a monk. He's got short hair. He wears maroon robes. I don't, was he ever a monk? I don't know. But he's certainly not a monk now. Is he a good lama? Of course, he's a good lama. His younger brother, Mingir Rinpoche, is a monk. Yes? He is a monk. You couldn't tell the difference. I mean, they're both short hair, maroon robes. One is a monk. Where you're, and then, so in Nyingma tradition, it's a bit fuzzy. You, that is, you can't tell so easily from outside. Yeah? Some Nyingma lamas, like, oh, I think, um, yeah, like Dingo Kinser Rinpoche, long hair. So everybody knew he wasn't a monk. But then you have the Tokten, the Tokten, the, the, uh, the Kaigyupa monks, these heavy-duty, Green Beret, Navy Seal, Kaigyupa, heavy-duty monks who let their hair grow into dreadlocks. And they're fully ordained monks, and no women, no sex, no nothing. They're hardcore, really hardcore, contemplative monks. Like Dubanamache, like Dubanamache, who appears in the movie The Yogis of Tibet. Dreadlocks, long hair, right? They're monks, but still have long hair, okay? And then there was one guy, some English guy I knew back in Dharma's. I didn't know him, but I, I could recognize him. He was so easy to recognize. He was some English guy, some English hippie. And he walked around. He had a beard. He wore maroon robes, and he grew his hair long, and he put it up into a bun and then put a bone through his bun. <laughs> And then he had a girlfriend, and he, and he presented himself as, I'm Tantrika, I'm a Nakba. He was a guy with a bone in his hair. <laughs> was my strong sense. Hola, <laughs> so. So, questions about the, the rest of, oh, okay, here's one I haven't read. Let's see. And it's, here's another practice one. I'll happy, be happy to respond. This is not hiding my fat very well. <laughs> I thought you did better than that. Hey, you're showing my, you're showing my fat. <laughs> my big belly protruding. <laughs> uh, everybody in the podcast, be happy that you do not have visual. <laughs> my shirt keeps an opening right where my fat is bulging out. So a question applying antidotes. The antidote is eat less, stupid. <laughs> That's the antidote for being fat. Eat less. Okay, but I think it's an antidote for something else. If I understand correctly, it is not that we are actively employing the five dhyana factors as antidotes to the five obscurations, but rather that they arise gradually as a result of our actively cultivating relaxation, stability, and vividness. That is correct. Yeah, they, they, they emerge like 
cream emerging from milk. On the other hand, even in the early stages of practice, when the dhyana factors seem to be present only in embryonic form, we are investigating, this is very true, yeah. we are investigating with we are investigating with introspection which of the five obscurations are arising and presumably employing antidotes to them as they arise. That is true. So investigation is something we are implementing. We're not just waiting for it to happen. In this sense, could we consider relaxation as a beginner's correlate to the Dryana factors of bliss and well, uh, well-being and bliss? Very, very thoughtful question. The answer is yes. The first thing, that is, when you start, some people are saying, oh, I'm still not experiencing ecstasy. Still not experiencing ecstasy. Somebody said, following instructions, no ecstasy. I'm doing fine. Following instructions, no ecstasy. I'm doing fine. Not great, I'm doing fine. No ecstasy. I'm waiting. Still doing fine. No ecstasy. So ecstasy isn't something that just happens, you know, that we can just turn on. And there's no telling. It, it, it differs in terms of physiology, constitution. Wind, that is, wind people, earth, water, fire, air. Bliss comes to some earlier than others. It's just constitutional. There are, there are past life factors that may, may certainly can, can, can be relevant here. But what we can really actively cultivate is that sense of ease, of relaxation, first of all, in body and mind, so the body feels, oh, that's nice, just loose. So it's not exactly ecstasy, it's not ecstasy, but it's kind of like better than being uptight. It's definitely moving in a gradient towards well-being and bliss. So it's a little tiptoe in that direction the, of the ease of the body, the relaxation of existential of the body, and then finding the breath just flowing effortlessly, finding just how nicely it just flows in of its own accord, and flows out, waving in, waving out, and kind of find that's quite relaxing. And then the mind being set at ease, finding those little stretches of five seconds, ten seconds, just quiet and present, serene. Not ecstasy, but yeah. This is something we shouldn't have to wait for weeks and weeks for. This could happen very early on. So yeah, the kind of the four signs, the preambles for well-being and bliss. Um, stability as a beginner's correlate to single-pointedness. Excellent point, yes. Vividness as a beginner's correlate to course examination and subtle examination, yes. Or do they correlate differently, or is it, a, is it a reach to think of it in this way at all? I think it's very intelligent thinking. Very good, very good. Yeah, so we, on the one hand, through cultivating these, we are sowing the seeds for all five dhyana factors. No question. And that's, those are very intelligent correlations. So good. Good point. Okay. So the other, other two are a bit more. This is one more. This is calling for a story. This is more theoretical, deep theoretical background. More story, sto story, story style. So we have a bit more than 20 minutes. Question related as time. Oh, before we go into questions, um, I'm just curious here, among you all here, prior to this retreat here in Phuket, how many of you have never uh, participated and a retreat of two weeks or longer prior to coming here? How many? Never two weeks or longer. So, yeah, I mean, significant number. So, yeah. So, consider now you're about to begin the longest retreat of your life, apart from the last, you know, last six weeks. Um, but we have two weeks left. And so, some of, some of you, quite understandably, are already anticipating, thinking ahead, going here, going there, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And such thoughts can be worth, worthwhile, but overall, unless there's something you really need to plan right now, like get on the internet, make, make a reservation, or what have you, 
You probably don't need to do it now, and you're still in this extraordinary environment for meditating. Whereas email and planning, and you can do that in the airport lounge. You can do that anywhere. So especially for the next week, if you can really just be totally here, taking full advantage of this marvelous sangha that we have, that's also very supportive. The environment itself, really savoring, hey, there's a full week coming. And then we'll have, I think we end on Thursday morning, I'm quite sure, isn't it? And Thursday morning, it'll be basically, we're going to, for all practical purposes, we'll end Wednesday night, because we'll have Wednesday morning and then Thursday morning. And then people are going to be packing, people are going to be so much in active mode that I thought, you know, after breakfast to try to have one final session, people are going to be so much going that there'll be very little of nirvana. It's going to be all varna. <laughs> you know, everybody's going in their minds already. So to try to, shamata, please, yeah, forget about it. Everybody's gone. It's being the, the, the doves have already flown the coop. And so we'll really end Wednesday night. And then that means we'll have two full days, not of wall-to-wall -wall talking, but the meals will be not silent, except for there can be a silent table for who people want that. Um, but overall, the silence will be finished on Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday will be a time for talking. Continue practicing, sure, but clearly a time to segue out of retreat mode so that when you go to the airport, or you go to the beach, wherever you're going from here, it's a smooth transition. And those last two days where we're talking and so forth, that could be a time to speak with Alma about prospects there in Nepal and so forth. So if you don't need to plan before then, that would be the best time. And until then, be here now. So questions about practice? Or shall I do go to, to story time? Yes, Brett first. And the microphone coming. <coughs> I had a question about the acquired sign. Mm -hmm. And did I recall at one point you said it's kind of shy? Like it has, a, it has to be uh, approached very delicately lest you chase it away. Does it have a sort of personality to it? And, if, uh, and also, another question, where exactly does it appear if I'm blocking all my mental thoughts? What field does it appear in? Yeah, of course, it, it could only appear and must appear only in the mental domain. So once again, it will appear now. Um, sure, we're releasing. We're not blocking. I wouldn't use that verb. Blocking sounds like if, if uh, Carlos comes running towards me, then, okay, I block him, right? It's a football term. Block him. That's certainly not the ambience of what's happening in, in, let's say, mindfulness of breathing. It's releasing. It's releasing, releasing. Very different ambience. So as we're just practicing, you're focusing your single-pointedly, and thoughts, images, and so forth come up. Uh, you'll see a wide variety. I'm sure you've seen a wide variety already. They come and go, all different varieties, flavors, and so forth. When the acquired sign arises, when it first arises, it will very likely look like just one more mental image. It won't come with a little flag, I'm an acquired sign, you know, it'll just be one more image. But it will appear in that same field of attention that is going to, as you're focusing here, and frankly, I've never heard of anybody achieving acquired sign when the attention is focused onto the abdomen or full body. It comes here when you're focusing on the apertures of the nostrils, and so your attention is focused downwards, right to this area. And in that mental space, in front of your face, more or less in the, more or less in the area of the tip of the nose, uh, then you'll, a sign will appear. And again, when it first, a sign means a mental image. And again, it could be a single point of light. It could be a garland, like a necklace of light. It can be like a cloud, like a fuzzy cloud. Um, it could be a sphere. It could be a concentric sphere, like sphere upon sphere. It could be a variety of things. Then go back to 
attention revolution, and of course the source for that is Buddha Gosa's Path of Purification. There's a pretty, you know, pretty good list, I mean an excellent list, of some of the range of acquired science that arise. When it first arises, it will look like just one more mental image, you release it, but then when it comes, if it, when it's the acquired sign, it will appear repeatedly, it will appear in the same way, and here's the real giveaway. It will appear not when your mind is especially distracted, but when your mind is especially not distracted. When you're really in the flow, that's when it's going to appear. So it's going to be a little bit anomalous. Everything was going so well, and then, hello, you know, comes this image. Whereas before it was blah, 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 all over the place, and no acquired sign. And now it's quiet, quiet, getting quieter, and then, ooh, howdy. And it appears not once, it appears again and again and again. If over the course of, let's say, three or four days, this is utterly vague and, you know, vague. If over the course of three or four days, when you're really in the flow of your practice, you find the same image crops up repeatedly in the same place and on those occasions when your attention is really focused, then welcome to your acquired sign. And at that point, you, sh you redirect your attention away from the tactile field to this purely mental field and specifically focusing single-pointedly on that mental object. Should it vanish, and it very likely will, then just come back and come back to the tactile sensations. And then wait till it come back again, and then you shift over. Eventually, as you're achieving stage four, five, six, and on, it will so stabilize that you don't go back to the tactile sensations at all. I mean, you, you might just to launch, to get into the session, and whoop, comes the acquired sign. And that'll be your long-term vessel uh, to, until the counterpart sign arises. And that's when you actually achieve shamatha. Uh, it occurs to me that there's a, a nice correlation there between uh, the acquired sign and dream signs. Mm -hmm. They're like recurring images and yeah, dreams. So you also have to be aware of three or four times before you can yeah. use them to become yep. Uh, yep. lucid. Yep. Uh -huh. Loose correlation, but a meaningful one. Good. Yeah. Anything else coming up? Yes, Luis. Haven't heard you from you from from you for a long time. <clears throat> this is not about the practice, it's about the book you mentioned about the Dhammapada, the 1,200-page commentary. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, the name uh, of the, the book or where we can get no, it? No, the e it's, a, it's a PDF. It's a PDF? Yeah, so the easiest thing for me would be just to send it maybe to shamata.org. How about I do that? Okay. It's really quite... It's really Quite inspiring. I mean, I find it, that's what I can say factually, I find it very inspiring. Thank you. And you really get a sense, so many, I mean, it's 1,200 pages long, and what you have is one chapter, often two or three pages, for every single verse. Everything, and, what, and it's not just a commentary, every single verse is showing the context in which that verse was uttered by the Buddha. It's really quite nice. Right. So, sure, um, I'll just send that off to shamata.org. There are a couple of texts there already, and I know I can do this. Uh, it's not taking that which is not given, because the author says this is for public distribution. Just don't sell it. So, don't sell it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful question. Sure. Anything else about practice? Yeah, go ahead. Jacob. Uh, this hopefully will be a very practical question for some of us or many of us in the near future. Um, you were talking before uh, a few weeks ago about getting shamatha and everything out in the open, like, you know, uh, mm. 
in terms of interface with the scientific community or the, the Shamatha itself, but not the names of the people who achieved it. Okay, so this is the question I have. Um, should somebody achieve shamatha, um, what are the considerations for them in terms of when, how, and what context to be open about it? No, the Buddhist position, and I, I think as far as I can tell, it's homogenous from ter I mean, the tradition I'm familiar with, Theravada, and then all, score, all four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. I've had a lot of exposure to all of them, especially Nyingma, Nyingma and, well, Galupa Nyingma, the other two significant. Um, be utterly candid, open, forthright with your Lama. Totally. Because that's where you're going to get further guidance. Right? And just say what happened. With, that, with, a little with, with as little interpretation as possible. Because if the person is your lama, then he or she will know more about Buddha Dharma than you do. Otherwise, why are they your lama? There's a very common error among Westerners especially, but it happens in Asia as well. And that is, we meditate along, and then we have some exceptional experience arise. And we want to make sense of it. Well, where does it fit? What was it? What was it? And then we read a little bit about Dharma. We read about maybe the jhanas, or we read about rikpa, or we read about something. And we, we know our experience. And we're trying to be honest. I mean, this is all in good faith, but this is my experience. And then we're thumbing through, thumbing through. It's almost like looking, you know, oh, that thing has a match. Uh, I think I must be an Arya Bodhisattva. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then... You know, because, because I'm a really nice guy, um, you know. <laughs> or we get these little sound bites, you know, just read the sound bites. There are little sound bites for each of the jhanas, you know. Five jhana factors, four jhana factors, three jhana factors, two, you know, like this little piggy went to market, little, you know. <laughs> there can be really short. And so what happens, it's happened a lot over the last 40 years. People have their experiences, and they're just absolutely insistent that it must correspond to something in the Buddhist teachings. They find something that more or less corresponds, and they say, oh, I've achieved this. And then a teacher comes to them and says, I'm, you know, a teacher actually who knows something, who studied extensively, because these words have meaning. Shamatha, as access to the first jhana, has a very specific meaning. It's not negotiable. It's not debatable. It's not sectarian. It is what it is, but you don't know what it is unless you've studied well. We don't learn the meaning of Buddhist terminology by meditating a lot. You learn the meaning of Buddhist terminology by studying a lot and getting teachings and question and answer and clarifying and getting rich context, background. That's how you learn what Buddhist terms mean, not by meditating a lot. Now, you, now having said that, congratulations. Now you know what a Buddhist term means. Does that mean you have even one little sniff of meditative experience? No. But then if you cultivate the two together and in close dialogue with somebody who really knows what he or she is talking about, who studied a lot, then, then you may know with confidence the guru has corroborated, you've, you, have corrobor you've, you have your own wisdom, you check with the guru, the guru corroborates, yes, congratulations, you've achieved such and such. Good, that's your private business. Private business. To tell anyone outside, overall, now I'll speak primarily from, overall in the, in the Theravada tradition, keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. No reason to talk about it. If you, if you feel any reason to talk about it, ask yourself why. Ask yourself why. You know? I love it when people say, 
I had this deep realization of emptiness, of identitylessness. I've really got to tell you about it. Are you impressed? That was me who had that. I have such realization of emptiness, such realization of, that I don't inherently exist. You know? So this has happened an awful lot over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And as a scholar, I'm not a great scholar at all, but you know, I've had a lot of wonderful teachings. And I see so many claims out there. I won't give any examples, but gosh, so many. And I feel sometimes like it's counterfeit money. It's counterfeit money. You know, Mipa making claims for dhyanas, for bodhicitta, for rikpa, for state of degeneration, for all kinds of stuff. Shamatha, of course, vipassana all over the place, stream entry, once returner, all over the place. And so much of it, as a scholar who's got a little bit of experience, I mean, have, you know, I have meditated, I look at it and say, There's, why should I believe that? And it looks like counterfeit money. And then I feel like, oh, like, wait a minute, counterfeit money shouldn't be in circulation. So, because it, it cheapens the whole tradition. That's what happens. So we hear people, there was one person some time back, how about this, that for vague, who claims some high realization in Theravada practice, once returner, something like that. That's way, way up there. Once returner, non-returner. So many people revered him. Oh, once returner, non-returner. Great, great Vipassana practitioner. Oy, 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 oy. Then had an affair. And then lied about it. Then the whole thing looks like a joke. You don't even keep five precepts? But you're supposed to be once returner? Give me a break. So now everything gets cast in doubt. Then if somebody else makes a claim, eh, you're probably like that guy. Or just this afternoon I was reading something by one psychologist that saying, he was saying, ah, you know, it's really not possible. He's writing a book on psychotherapy and Buddhism. And he was saying, you know, it's really not possible. It's just the nature of the human psyche is it's not possible to have a conf conflict-free psyche because the subconscious there is just full of crap and you can't have a not, you can't have a you can't obliterate the subconscious, but the subconscious is going straight to Freud. It's just full of grimy stuff, primal impulses and craving and lust and libido and all of that. So forget about it. Not possible. So basically, Freud trumps Buddha. You know, he did this, and he said, "Oh, by the way, here's my evidence." He's speaking. He's refuting the Theravada. It's not interpretation. The Theravada reaffirmation that. that our hardship is complete purification of all mental afflictions and the elimination of all mental suffering. There's just, it's not open to interpretation unless you just want to make up your own polycanon, which some people very seem very keen on doing. And so he said, you know, it's just not true, that literal interpretation. And, and why? And I'll give me the evidence. Why is the Theravada interpretation of Nirvana not true? Why? Oh, because some time back there were five Zen practitioners who were regarded as highly realized Roshis and they got all caught up in a sexual scandal. And therefore, the Theravada is not true. And I thought, what do you have? Mashed potatoes for brains? I mean, this is... And you said that in print? Have you no shame? I mean, maybe your intelligence is intrinsically impaired, but come on. And this was in print. I mean, gee, what crap? You know, what do you call that? Sometimes the word crap just has to be used. That's crap. It's just ridiculous. So, to answer the question... Overall, you're a guru in yourself. I mean, unless there really is some very clear insight 
they're just specific individual at a specific time. You really could help them. So that sounds like, oh, we're some kind of a cult. We want to keep everything secret. Don't ever tell anybody, like blah, 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 blah. Well, no, it's just that we're not, how do you say, coming out with big ego. Jug with a little bit of water, shake it, makes a lot of noise. A jug full of water, shake it, makes no noise. As in my case, jug with no water, shake it, makes no noise. <laughs> so the mere fact, and this is a, a word to the wise is sufficient, a mere fact that the person doesn't claim to have no realization doesn't mean they have realization. <laughs> Sometimes a horse is just a horse, and a horse's ass is just a horse's ass too. You know? Sometimes you can actually take it literally. So, Genlam Rimba was, again, classic, classic Tibetan yogi, marvelous yogi. 25, 30, 35 years in retreat. Hardly ever spoke of a realization, but I lived with him for a full year, very close, during the one-year retreat that he led, and I, I assisted. And a couple of occasions, just to me, he would share some experiences he had with such humility such humility, such selflessness that I, 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 I just saw no trace, not even an atom of, oh, he's trying to impress me. He's calling attention. I'm special. It couldn't come to mind. It was so clear. So, so where did transparency go? When people start achieving shamatha, tell your teacher. Maybe it's Mingiramaji, maybe it's Lama Zubaramaji, who it is. And then it's up to the Lama. If any of my students very clearly, unequivocally achieve shamatha, and if I have their permission, then I will make it public, but I will guard almost, almost with my life, I want to be careful about that term, but I will guard very strenuously their anonymity. If they want to tell other people, of course, I'm not boss, but if they start talking to other people, Here's what the Tibetan tradition says, and it's not just a bunch of old fogies with superstition, but it's really a whole tradition, speaking with one voice. Start talking it up. Hey, look at me, I achieve shamatha. Look at me, I achieve this, I achieve that. It's just kind of like getting up on top of your roof with a loudspeaker and calling to all the Maras, hey, Maras, I want obstacles. You hear me? This is Alan speaking. <laughs> obstacles, please. And they just, just throw boulders on your path. So the Gadamba Geshes, they're the ones that... There's a lot of politics in Tibetan Buddhism, unfortunately, but power, politics, money, land, ownership, there it is, it's history, right? And so there was rancor on occasion between this sect, that sect, this lama, that lama. It happened, it's human beings, what do you say? But there was one group started by Atisha and Domdumba, Geshe Chekawa, Geshe Botawa, and so forth, these Kadamba Geshes. No politics, no money, no power. They were just practitioners. And lo and behold, that group, the authentic Kadampa tradition, no other adjectives, just the Kadampa tradition, period. No adjectives. Uh, everybody loved them. Everybody revered them. The Nyema, the Kagyut Sakya, everybody. The Lojong, the seven-point mind training from that tradition, everybody practices it. Totally pure. So what was their aphorism? I'll end on this note. Story time will be another day.
But this is really good. The authentic Kadamba tradition. These people, just like pure, I mean, just pure motivation. That doesn't mean they're all highly realized. How can that be? But motivation and the whole context of the Sangha, right? That what was normal, what was acceptable. A lot of them were monks, not all of them. Dumdumba was the principal disciple of Atisha. He wasn't a monk, never became a monk, right? Many were monks. But that's not the crucial point. The crucial point was motivation and discipline and the purity of all of that, way of life and so forth. And here's, here was their motto for the authentic Kadampa tradition. Outwardly, what are you displaying? There's a, somebody just looks and not just looks, see how, what you look like, but how do you behave? How do you eat? How do you engage with other people? How are you engaging with the world around you? What do they see? Pure ethics. Pure ethics. Non-injurious. Pure ethics. Being a benefit when they can, of service when they can, but just, oh, very ethical person. That's what they would see. That's outwardly. Oh, those Kadambas are really ethical. Really ethical. Free of eight mundane concerns. Not grasping for money, for blah, 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 blah. Just, oh, authentic. Outwardly, pure. If they're monks, pure vinya. Pure ethical discipline. Inwardly, if you could peer into their minds, what would you see? Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta. You wouldn't see that. They wouldn't be all gushing, just spraying bodhicitta in all directions. Just outwardly, just ethics. But inwardly, motivation, why are they practicing the shamatha? Why are they practicing the vipassana, whatever they're doing? Bodhicitta. Inwardly, they're bodhisattvas. But quietly, not making a big deal. Like, oh, look at me, I'm bodhisattva. Don't look at me at all. Inwardly, bodhisattva. Secretly, so nobody knows. Secretly, so in the innermost sanctum, Vajrayana. So no outer displays at all of Vajrayana. Nothing. Wouldn't ev- you wouldn't even see them reciting mantra. You wouldn't see bell, Vajra, big ch- drums. You wouldn't see the outer rituals of, of Vajrayana. You wouldn't see it. You'd see a simple monk sitting in a cave, doing not much. Some of the Kadamba Geshis, when they died, then the other monks would go through and see what they left behind. Is oh, look, a Vajra bell. He must have been practicing Vajrayana. Otherwise, they didn't know. So anybody who calls himself Kadamba, but insists on displaying their Vajrayana aspect, what a joke. They're, they're going against the central theme of the whole Kadamba tradition. Keep your Vajrayana practice quiet, silent, secret, private, between you and your guru. You want to make a big deal and everything has to be public? Fine, but why you call yourself Kadamba? What a, what a joke. So that's the true Kadamba tradition. Outer inner secret. What, what happens in the modern world as Dharma degenerates? Outer is Vajrayana. Look at me, I got a bone in my hair. <laughs> Look at me, I got a girlfriend, she's my consort. <laughs> we don't just have sex, we have special sex. You know? So outer is all big Vajrayana. Look at my big mala, look at all the strings I have around my wrist. Look at all the strings around my neck. Look at my other, I mean, I'm really Vajrayana. Look at all the blessings I've got. Look at my big mala, I've got bones on my mala. You know? I've got Vajrayana coming out my pores. So outer Vajrayana. Inwardly, selfish. Secretly, no ethics at all. (laughs) 
So then we make John a big joke. So let's not have John a joke. It's the only hope for our happiness. Right, literally, right? The only hope for our happiness is Dharma. So let's keep it clean. Dharma for the sake of Dharma. Hola, so.